Fred's got a bit shorter. It's great to be here today and to share with you. It's a privilege to worship together. Um, This morning I'd like to talk about communicating with God, and we use the word prayer to describe that, but I should say in communication, confess my sins straight up. uh, I'll have a few a bit later as well. But if you've read the bulletin, you'll realise a bit of a Donald Trump moment. I've made a big mistake. There's one word that's missing here, and uh, if you're a student of the bulletin, who is? Anyone? (laughs) We always, as preachers, get to write the little bit in the front. And I was reading this morning, I thought, oh gosh, I'm going to have to change a word here. In the middle it says, powerful prayer by using magic formulas. What's the word that's missing? Not, okay. So that's why I said it's a bit of a Donald Trump moment. Okay, I have to go back. That's if you watch the news. There you go. So just insert that word in your mind, um, and uh, I think we'll be okay. But uh, most of us love communication, don't we? We love talking with friends. Uh, We love um, closeness in friendship, moving beyond mere formulas. And the word we use to describe the setting aside of sort of cultural norms and forms of communication to really connecting another person, the word we use that in English is the word intimacy. And intimacy in communication is a, is a big thing. It's important to move beyond that. And we love it. We, we, there's something in us that is born of God, by God, for God to embrace intimacy. And when you watch movies, I'm sure you love uh, in our secret places, even us guys who sort of, no, I'm okay. We, we like those uh, parts, that moment where people share who they really are, do we not? And there's a moment of realness. And I have my top ten in, uh, in life, and one of my favourite movies that shares this, it's a great adventure as you get to know someone, the beginnings of intimacy and love and commitment and communication is definitely adventure and adventure because you're dealing with humans. But one of my favourite movies is the movie Princess Bride. Anyone seen the movie Princess Bride? It's, uh, if you haven't seen it, watch it. Apart from one scene at the end where he uses a, a, a word that we wouldn't use in polite conversation, it's, it starts, it's five, uh, six letters or five letters and it starts with B. It's, it's a bit rude. But apart from that, it's got a pretty, it's a G-rated type of movie. So it's a really fun movie about adventure and true love and fighting and fencing. And it has my favourite beginning of all movies. It's about a story of two, uh, two people who learn that true love will always win through. Intimacy will win through. And it's told to a little boy who's sick in bed by his grandfather. And then it, it sort of carries moves into the scenes and it's explained. And my favourite beginning, of, it's my favourite beginning of, of all sort of movies because it has a great scene about love. And we're just going to watch it for a second and talk about communication. And let's all just pause and enjoy the, the beginning of this movie. Turn her up. It's Morgan Stern, Chapter 1. Buttercup was raised on a small farm in the country of Florin. Our favorite pastimes were riding her horse and tormenting the farm boy that worked there. His name was Wesley, but she never called him that. Isn't that a wonderful beginning? Yeah, it's really good. 
Nothing gave Buttercup as much pleasure as ordering Wesley around. Farm boy, polish my horse the saddle. I want to see my face shining in it by morning. As you wish. As you wish was all he ever said to me. Farm boy, fill these with water. Please. As you wish. That day, she was amazed to discover that when he was saying, as you wish, what he meant was, I love you. And even more amazing was the day she realized she truly loved him back. Come, boy. Fetch me that picture. Isn't that a cracker? Uh, I, I, I just uh, tell you, watch the movie. It gets better. There's some truly terrific lines there. I could quote them at length as all fans of that movie. But we love this in movies. We love to see the declaration of intimacy uh, between people. And that was a nice beginning, wasn't it? But imagine if all they'd ever said was as you wish. How long would it take before someone was going, Is that, can, you just, can you say something more than that? The thing is in marriage and in relationships between men and women, though, um, is they would have understood they'd have to share more than that, but they would have also discovered that men and women communicate differently. Uh, before my current work, I uh, worked for basically 20 years as a, a working pastor in churches, and I did a lot of marriage counselling and needed a lot of marriage counselling uh, in terms of my own communication style and the communication styles of others in marriage, and I discovered that men and women we, we uh, communicate a bit differently. And it's not that we're wrong. I don't like fights about right, who's right, who's wrong. We're just different. And so if you're like me, I want a task and mission plan every time I'm talking to my wife about anything. So I want to know how, what, when, where, who, and why. Give me a mission, then I feel like I'm providing, you know. Instead of going, you know, it feels pretty cold here and meaning, can you please turn the heater on? I want to know, please... Can you turn the heater on? Then I feel like I'm on a mission. Must get ready for winter. Must make things. I can do that. I can build that. Women are a bit differently. You know, they, they want, the, they want the, uh, a bit of a mystery there. Say something, man works it out. Works out, I'll turn the heater on. Get that blanket, put it around my wife. They want us to think that through. Work out those needs before they've told us. And uh, I can't tell you the number of conversations I've had in marriage counselling with couples where that's the complaint. Never puts his shoes where he should be putting them. I said, have you told him where you should put those shoes? No, he should just know. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not saying it's right. It's just different. We all want the other to be like us in communication. And when we realise that they're not going to get that straight, um, we can 
get grumpy, we can clam up, we can wait for that other person to change and we can get hard-hearted. And talking to God is growth for men and women because God, the best of men and women, comes from God. You know, in Genesis it said man and woman were made in the image of God. In the image of God, God made them. All that we love about our wives and mothers and daughters and sisters comes from God. All that we love about our fathers and husbands and brothers uh, and sons comes from God. We're made in the image of God, but we're a fractured image. We're a broken image. We don't always get it right. And so there's this conflict. But God is perfect. And if we as imperfect people want to move towards God, all of God's femininity and masculinity is held in the Godhead. And we will have to grow. And God is a God who embraces both of that. And so our problem is that we can become, just as we can become hard-hearted towards our others in our lives, we can become hard-hearted towards God. And how should we pray when we're hard-hearted? And this is a journey we need to grow in and with God, that intimacy of faith and hope, and especially when we're hard-hearted. And as I uh, heard that we're going to be praying for this prayer vigil, having the prayer vigil and then the 110-4, I was... I was really encouraged because God has taken me on this journey over the last uh, few weeks, extended weeks, maybe six weeks. And I, had, I was going to prepare a completely different sermon. I had already prepared it and then God just drove me into this direction. And then I found out there's the prayer vigil and the 110.4 and I went, this is for a reason. God has done this work in me and it's a journey that I've been on and he's challenged me deeply of how can I pray when I'm hard-hearted? How do I develop intimacy with God? And a passage that uh, comes forward that speaks directly about this in our Bibles, if you have a Bible or you can follow on the screen, is from Mark 11 of how we can break through in prayer in our hard-heartedness. Because I think, truth be known, we all struggle in our humanness when it comes to God. We want to go to formulas, we want to go to uh, times and dates and lengths of time, and if I get that right, it's all square, but it's more than that. And Jesus was on the ball with this, and we can learn a lot from him about that journey. So let's read this uh, and follow along. The next day, when they were leaving uh, Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in Leith, so he's moving towards Jerusalem, uh, seeing a fig tree in the distance in Leith, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it wasn't the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it, heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Jesus is thinking. And he taught them. And he said, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus' mind goes to prayer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard him and began looking for a way to kill him because they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And evening came, when evening came, Jesus, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city in the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. 
Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. So we have in this passage uh, an understanding of Jesus about prayer, what prayer is and how prayer works and what prayer, uh, the function of prayer is in our lives. And it's interesting how Jesus has this encounter with a fig tree and then the temple and his mind has gone to prayer. I'm not sure it would have been in us, but it's interesting that it does it. When we're, he talks about the hard-heartedness of the Jewish people and their temple worship, which should have been a place of prayer, a place of open communication. And he extrapolates this. And I don't know about you, but I admire men and women who place a high priority in prayer. Uh, Frankly, prayer has proved to be one of the most difficult and demanding and uh, strength-growing, struggling, sort of pushing the boundaries of life and ministry in my life uh, of all my time. At different times, I've found prayer strenuous, I've found it boring, I've found it frustrating, I've found it difficult. Um, and over the years, uh, one, out of my experience, I've learned that you can't just say your prayers. Prayer requires all of me, I don't know about you, to really connect with prayer. And to admit my lifelong struggle, I've been a Christian now 40 years, with prayer, in the face of Jesus' teaching of prayer, And Jesus' life, I do so with great uneasiness because it seems to me as I look at Jesus' life, prayer was the work and ministry was the prize. When I look at prayer, I'd be much more have seen it as sort of the preparation for ministry. But in Jesus' life, he approached prayer as the battle, the place of struggle, and the ministry was the prize. Um, He went about ministry as like Uh, a marathon runner might do having run the race except the gold medal as a student who's done the hard work in their university degree might accept the degree at the end so for him prayer was the struggle and and we know this from Jesus life to be true where did Jesus struggle where did he sweat where did he have his battles was it as he was walking to the cross at Golgotha was it when he was in Pilate's presence getting condemned by the Jews was that the struggle no it was in Gethsemane wasn't it that's where he sweated great drops of blood and if I'd been there I would have thought wow Jesus is getting so broken up and struggling through this prayer you know this prayer time Um, how's he going to be if it was a real crisis I mean look at his friends over there they're all seem to be asleep and happy and relaxed why can't he be more like them but what happened when, when, the, when the time of testing really came? Jesus was at peace. His disciples ran away. Because for Jesus, prayer was much more than the preparation. And I suspect in your life and my life, prayer is the same. If prayer is to be what it is, it's much more than the preparation for ministry. It is the battle. And then out of that comes a place of strength and peace to achieve what God wants. And this is what Jesus has faced here. He's come to Jerusalem. He's on his way. He sees a fig tree. 
It's in leaf, and he goes just because he's hungry, it says. He goes it, but there's no figs there because it's not the time for figs. Do you think Jesus didn't know that it wasn't the time for figs? They knew their seasons better than us. They're like the Noongar people of WA. They have six seasons. We have four. They know those six seasons. Jesus knew the seasons. And then he says, big meanie, that's how I used to think about it, big meanie to this poor fig tree, may you never bear fruit again. And then he goes to Jerusalem and has a big fight with the, with the religious leaders and the Jewish people for turning the temple, place of worship and prayer, into a marketplace. And if you want to get an insight about how Jesus thought about worship, where did, he had his big battles. He was most grieved when people turned worship into a sort of a transaction between people and God. So when he healed the man with the withered hand and the Pharisees wanted to kill him, he was deeply grieved in his spirit. Here, Jesus is deeply grieved. And I think Jesus was hungry spiritually and hungry physically. And we know this to be true because when he was teaching, in his, he was teaching so much in his ministry sometimes, people, his disciples came to him and said, Lord, eat something, because he hadn't eaten. And he said, my, my food is to do the will of God. So Jesus' physical hunger, his spiritual hunger are sort of caught up together as one. He's spiritually hungry, he's physically hungry, he's on his way to Jerusalem. What will he as the Lord, creator of the universe, see of his worshipping people? He sees they've turned it into a marketplace and his spirit is deeply grieved and he clears the temple. And then on the way back he sees the fruit. Well, they see that Peter sees the tree. I think he wanted them to hear it. He wasn't trying to keep it a secret. Peter goes, look, Lord, that's been withered from the roots. And what does Jesus use it as a teaching moment for? The importance of worship or the importance of faithful ministry? No, he turns it into a teaching moment about prayer, about open intimacy and communication. And that's what we're faced with here that we can learn from this. Jesus has got something to say to us as he did to his disciples about the nature of intimate communication. What is that nature of intimate communication? How can we grow in that when we're hard-hearted? When the bustle of life has driven us to turn worship and prayer and communication with God into a place where we just follow the formulas. If I do this, if I do the how, what, when, where, who, and I square all that away, God will act. He'll not only will I know God better, but he'll do what I want him to do. And it so easily turns into God being the celestial vending machine in the sky, does it not? We get our pay pass, bink, God gives us what we've asked for. And Jesus was constantly combating that in the human spirit. So how can we pray when we're hard-hearted when we don't know how to pray we're hard-hearted how do we break it out the first thing jesus teaches in this is that we should abandon ourselves in faith to god's character and goodness notice the first thing jesus says when his disciples so when peter says to him lord look at the the fig tree it's withered jesus says have faith in god that's the first thing and then he talks about believing prayer and what it means to get what god wants uh, and what God's going to answer your prayer. But the first comment is about prayer. When he gave this, above, this promise to his disciples, he pointed out where faith in the answer to prayer comes from and where it finds its strength. The locus of intimacy is to have faith in God. The, the focus of our prayer, the focus of our faith, should not be in the prayer, not in us and our commitment to it, but in, in the God to whom we're praying. 
Jesus' command, have faith in God, precedes the promise of the answered prayer. And the power to believe a promise, is it not true in our own experience? If you're talking with friends or family, is it not true that the power to believe a promise from someone comes entirely from their character, our trust in their character, in the, in the faith of the one who makes the promise. Trust in a person creates trust in that person's word. It's only when we enjoy a loving relationship with God himself that our whole being is opened up to God's influence, his presence. And the capacity in us will be developed to to believe God and to trust God at his word. And we know this to be true in our own lives, that we trust those to, to give to us what we've asked or that they will fulfill their promise based on their character. And Throughout my life, I've had times where I've had friends who were so trusted, I knew if they said they would do something for me, I never, I never doubted that again. Have you had people like that? People at work, perhaps, when someone says, look, I'm on it. And you just go, oh, thank goodness. I don't have to worry about it again. That's really the highest compliment you can give to a person, isn't it? When they say, look, I'm on it. I had a guy like that at Wage and Baptist Church when I was a pastor there for nine years, I tell you. He was a guy that if he'd said to me, Neil, in six months' time you've asked me to do it, I'll, open, I'll go and push the buttons on the side of the door and I'll open the church door for you to take that box in in six months' time. I said I'd do it. I never had to worry about it. He would be there. I wouldn't have had to think about it. I just turn up. All he's doing, waiting six months to open the door, He was that faithful and that reliable. And we know that the people that we trust the most are the people who've demonstrated their faithfulness because of their their love to us. And when we're hard-hearted, we have to yield to that love of another, to their faithfulness, yield to their trust, the the, the person and the character of them when we're hard-hearted. We don't trust in us and our hoarded endurance and strength. We have to move away from us to them and that's what he means by have faith you may have been watching the news this week there's this wonderful story about this lady her name is Kel Wilkinson and that's Kel with her little baby and that's her son Nels this was on the news this week because this young man in December last year had a fight with his mum he's from Margaret River in Western Australia Uh, him and have grown up there and it was on the news that told the story of how this young man, 33 years old, his name is Nelson or Nels, and his mum, Kel Wilkinson, they had a fight last year about his drug taking. And as any mother would want, desperately trying to get him off his cocktail, his preferred cocktail of methamphetamines and flacker, right? And he just descended into drug use, and as every mother who loved a child, she was trying to help him break free from that. But so hard-hearted about that, that he just disappeared off the face of the map and she thought, oh, look, you know, he's gone, he's gone back to Perth, he's gone, something like that. And for a few months she, she thought, oh, look, he'll just turn up. But when he, she didn't start to hear anything from him, he wasn't answering emails, wasn't answering phone calls, wasn't answering texts, wasn't texting her in any way, she started to have a mother's worry. She started ringing homeless shelters in Perth. She started checking out uh, the police in Perth, talking to friends, pressing friends in Margaret River. And by chance, she met an acquaintance of her and Nell's. And he said, you know, a few months ago, I heard that he'd gone to Sydney. And I think he's in King's Cross and he's chasing the scene over there. And she said her heart just stopped. She was just so afraid. And so what she did is she started ringing the police in Sydney, King's Cross. 
ringing the police all over the place. They said, one of the police officers said, you know, we think he's in King's Cross. He hangs around McDonald's. So what does she do? She tells her friend. Friends gather together in Margaret River because she runs a, uh, a sort of, she's a, a woman of care and nurturing to others. She runs like a, a designated driver service in Margaret River for other people's children so they can get home safe. They crowdfund her, only enough money to drive to Sydney. She knew she couldn't fly. She gets in her, because uh, he'd never get in the, on the plane. She gets in her car and she drives to Sydney just in the last month. And she drives for three and a half days and she said that she just drove and drove and drove and drove until she had to sleep. She slept and then she drove and drove and drove. Took her three and a half days to get there. She gets to Sydney. She's texting the police in King's Cross. Have you seen him? She starts handing out flyers. One of the policemen says, I think he's down at McDonald's somewhere. I've seen him there before. She goes down to McDonald's. Doesn't sleep in a car as she'd planned to. She gets to McDonald's, she's in the dark of McDonald's, and then across the road, in the shadows, in a gutter, she sees a man standing, walking around, kneeling, sitting in the gutter, eating food out of the gutter, and she says, I knew that it was my son, because I recognise his walk anywhere. She goes over to him, and she says, Nels. He wouldn't look at her. He didn't know it was her. But then she says in the article that I was reading, she says, I said, Nell, she said, he wouldn't look at me. I said, I put my hand on his arm. And I said, Nell's, it's me, mum. And out of his drug-fueled haze, he heard those words. He felt that touch. And he looked up and he recognised his mother. And she said, all I could do was hug him and say, let's go home. It took some, convi- some convincing, but he got in the car and he drove back with her. He might be getting back today. We don't know. This is a real-life, real-time story. They had to stop in Goulburn as he was so addicted to ice, put him in hospital to get recovery from the withdrawal symptoms of ice. But what changed this young man in his hard-heartedness? Was it a long conversation and a theological treatise about the importance of, you know, solving your problems and your future and your drug use, it's bad for you. No, it was the knowledge that a mother had travelled 4,000 kilometres to touch his arm and look in his eyes and say, it's me, mum. It was that look of recognition. It wasn't the knowledge, it was the moving from his hard-heartedness to the trust in the one who had come to him. And that, my friends, is what God has done to you and me in the person of Jesus. When we're hard-hearted, when we can't pray, when we won't look at God in our selfishness and and the slavery and the addictions of our lives, he says, look to what I've done for you in the cross. Look at the Son who's come from heaven to walk the earth, to look you in the eye and say, come home. Let's go home. And that's what happens when we turn to God in prayer. We look at him. And many of, of us as God's children, we don't connect that, that trust of the person of God to our prayers. When we desire an answer from God, we fix our whole heart upon the promise and we try to grab it and pull faith out of us and we struggle with prayer. But when we're struggling with prayer, we need to look to the one to whom we pray. 
And that's why Jesus says, have faith in God. Let faith look to God more than the thing promised, to his love, his power, his presence. And then out of that, we see power. And that's what we saw in Abraham. Abraham believed God, the Bible says, and God credited it to him as righteousness because of how God had broken into Abraham's life. And it took a long time for Abraham to really believe that. But God had done the work of the vision. God had done the work of coming into his life. And God has done the work in your life and my life in the person of Jesus. We naturally seek God's gifts. We want God. We want to be blessed by God. But God wants to give us himself first. And that's the first thing we learn about prayer. That it is primarily a transaction between us and God. That we need to abandon ourselves to God's character, abandon ourselves to his goodness. And prayer primarily is a time where we sit and pause and wait and seek the character of God. And we know this to be true in our own human relationships. Who, who loves those moments when, we, when you're with friends and there's no big agenda in the conversation. You haven't got your big list of things to talk about and to get things done. When a friend rings and says, hey, and you go, oh, yeah, what, what can I do for you? And they go, oh, no reason. I just ring and see how you're going. You want to have it, catch up for a coffee? Oh, is there any reason? No, no, just chat. Isn't that the best of times when there's no agenda? You're just sitting, relaxing, no big list. God wants that because we love him. And I want to encourage us in application to pause, to wait, to seek God. And when we seek him, when we find him, then out of that is evoked all that we need to bring to God. That's the first part of prayer as we're hard-hearted. The second one is challenging, as challenging as the first. And it is this. How should we pray when we're hard-hearted? Firstly, as we know, we abandon ourselves to God's love flowing through us, flowing into us. But secondly, we abandon ourselves... Uh, not just to faith in God, but to God's love flowing through us by forgiving those who've hurt us. As Jesus said, when you stand praying, this is immediately after he said, had faith in God. Trust God's character first in prayer. He then talks about this, seemingly unconnected, but you'll, I think we'll see that it's a very powerful point. When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. I love the Swan River, and if you fo- I don't put much up on Facebook, but if you uh, want to see the Swan, I love the Swan River and what it does, and some of these early morning shots you get over the Swan, or you get, oh, you get a rainbow over the Swan River. It's a beautiful place to walk, and only true believers who walk early in the morning get the best of the Swan. And it's just a, a place that's alive with wildlife. But the sad thing is that in different parts, the water comes in from the mountains and out in the, uh, not the mountains, but out in the plains and it goes all the way through. It's a beautiful river. But there are parts of the swan uh, that are particularly gross from uh, algae blooms. This is a, a sort of a, near Perth is a lake. And the thing about water is that water is designed to move. And if, if you've ever seen a beautiful river and you're walking along it and it's just crystal and then you see a little eddy, you know, where the water sort of backs up on itself and just goes round and round in a circle, what gets caught in the eddy? Everything. And this gorgeous rapids you've been looking at, you see the filth of cans and that. And, you know, intimacy is like that. Intimacy is like that because when we come to God and we pray for God, he comes into us and he wants to flow out of us. 
And the first thing he wants to deal with is our unforgiveness. Human beings are pretty unforgiving people. And if there's one thing that's going to prevent us from allowing the, God to, God, the love of God and the person of God and his character flow out, it's the, the bottling up of his power and love and character through us saying, in our, deep in our spirit, I will not forgive. When Jesus says forgive, is it an impossible command? It can't be impossible, or he wouldn't have asked us to do it. And especially when we know that the power of forgiveness comes because of the power of God's forgiveness in our life. And when we say have faith in God, and it shows to us everything depends upon our relationship with God being based on his character and his love, the word that follows reminds us that our relationship with others is equally connected to that thought, that they too must be as unhindered. And prayer from a heart that's not right with God or can't get along with others won't have any real effect. Faith and love are interdependent and we need to abandon ourselves to God's love flowing through us into the lives of others. And Jesus brings out forgiveness as the number one thing that we will struggle with there. And it's something that the Lord frequently emphasised. If you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was talking about the commandments and he taught his disciples that acceptable worship with the Father of the Father wasn't possible if we, if we, unless everything was right with a brother. Remember he said, therefore, if you've got a gift at the altar and you remember your brother has something against you, go and leave your gift in front of the altar and be reconciled to your brother and then come back and give the gift. And when talking about prayer to God in Matthew after Jesus has taught us to forgive us our trespasses as we have forgiven those. And Matthew adds, if you don't forgive them then their sins, your Father will not forgive you. And at the end of the unmerciful servant, that parable, Jesus says, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. And so standing beside this dried up fig tree, Jesus speaks these wonderful words of faith and the power of faith. And then almost... Strangely, he jumps to forgiveness, this thought, apparently without connection. When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your heavenly Father may forgive you. It seems that Jesus had learned in his life that one of the great bottlenecks of our life to intimacy with God and power of prayer was our own unforgiveness. And this is the lesson that we need to learn. He wanted us to be led into a place of his own experience, that nothing gives such liberty in prayer and intimacy with the Father that allowing that to flow out into forgiveness of others. And let's face it, if God dealt with us based on our own sin, how many of our prayers would be answered? If God didn't forgive us, would any of our prayers be answered? Not one. So we only come to God in prayer because of the forgiveness that is being offered and bought at such a cost on the cross in the resurrection. God has pardoned us. He's forgiven us. And because of that, our prayers can prevail. And the ground of answered prayer is God's love. And he says, you need to let that flow out of you. Let it be like a river, not like an eddy. Don't bottle it up because if you do, it will just end up full of algae and putridness. And you will not be able to move forward. And when injury or injustice is done to us, and let's face it, it happens. It's important that we just don't excuse it and say, oh, they were just like that, or oh, it wasn't that bad. We need to forgive it and say, no, I forgive it. 
Now, it doesn't mean that you allow that person to again and again create, uh, you know, commit those same things against you. It doesn't mean that we're allowing abuse to occur. But we need to forgive from the heart. We need to give it to God. Issues of justice and that sort of thing and abuse are set aside from a heart attitude that says, I will most definitely give this to God. And I've seen this in my current work where people will not give the hurts and brokenness of their past to God and it poisons them. It's like a cup of poison and they just drink it all day and it ends up eating them. They think they're getting a win, they're getting a loss. They could give that to God. And that's what Jesus is saying here. The blood that, of Jesus that cleanses our conscience also cleanses us from selfishness. And it's a pardoning love that takes possession of us and moves forward. And this forgiveness is given to God, by God, sorry, because he's love. And God says, I want you to love as I have loved. As, the, you, know, as you love, so I give that to you. I want you to flow that out into your life. And as that happens, you will discover a great release of intimacy between you and God because our hearts will be open to the disposition. The love and forgiveness that is given won't be bottled up and become a cesspool, but they will be flow out and it will allow more of God to come in as it flows out. And this is the, this is the teaching of this parable. Who finds it challenging? It's challenging because it deals with the very part of us. But the good news is that the power for this has been bought and won and found in the giving of God in Jesus. That the power of forgiveness has been won by what he's done on the cross when he hung on a cross and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus didn't say, oh, look, excuse them. You know, humans, they are what they are. No, Father, forgive and because of his power that's bought that forgiveness in our life, we can then move out and we can experience all of God. And so how should we? How should we receive? If we can just move that on one slide. How should we pray when we're hard-hearted? I think the Bible's Jesus is teaching us that if we want to build intimacy, if we want to build communication, if we want to build, we need to pray firstly to God have faith in him and turn our broken spirits to his spirit that heals and loves, that's borne such a price and comes such a distance to us. Don't trust in us, trust in the God to whom we pray. And secondly, let that flow out into those to whom we have to forgive. And he says, as we receive that, a great blessing will come to us and a great blessing will come to others uh, because of the person of Jesus. And of course, we have Jesus right here. We have his presence in the Holy Spirit. We can come to Jesus and give our lives to him. And so I invite us as his children to do that now as we pray and give our lives to him. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father God, we come before you in prayer and we open our lives up to you. We trust not in our, our prayers. We trust not in our hearts. We trust not in our words or our spirit. We trust in you your character, your love, your person, your son, your spirit. And we give ourselves to you. We pause and wait and rest in your presence without agenda, asking that you will heal. Heal us, heal the brokenness, the woundedness. Strengthen the things that we're joyful for.
and we give these things to you. And Father, we also place before you those that we know. And we pray for your love and forgiveness to flow through us into their lives. Help us to give to you the woundedness from others. You know the names, you know the faces, you know the pain. You know the brokenness we've given to others, you know the brokenness we've received from others, the wounding, and we give it to you. We pray that we will genuinely forgive as you've empowered us to do in the cross and the resurrection of your son and we'll have a disposition that wants to as we've experienced more of you. We pray these things for your sake and for your honour and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.